You're listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on real estate investing. Join us on our entrepreneurial voyage through the world of flipping houses, managing rental property, and building a real estate empire. Hello, and welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. I am here, John Errico, as always with Ryan Goldfarb. This is a special episode because this is the first episode that we are filming, or not the actual first, but the first that we're filming with the intention of uh, sharing it with other people. (laughs) So uh, we're very excited, and we have a great topic. Ryan, do you want to introduce it? Sure. So uh, this week, we thought we'd take a... uh, a dip into some current events in the world of real estate and analyze some of the recent news surrounding Zillow's exit from the iBuying space. Um, Maybe we should start with what iBuying is just as a general primer. Let's do it. Um, So iBuying I think has kind of evolved over the past few years and I think it now comes to mean uh, or now comes to represent a number of companies that are sort of pioneering the algorithm-driven, uh, sort of AI-focused internet buying process. Um, so a few of the big names in this space are or were uh, Zillow offers. Um, there are other players such as OfferPad and Open Door. Um, I actually don't know how the two of them have been faring, but I'm sure they're happy to see the exit of Zillow from the space. Um, or terrified (laughs) or terrified. Um, but for context, that has been a pretty big push of Zillow over the past few years. Um, they've started introducing it in certain markets. And the idea was that they would use their abundance of data, um, regarding home values and buying activity and demand to forecast what their understanding of true value would be. Um, and then they, I think, have also they've also uh, jumped into the space of uh, brokerage a little bit and uh, mortgage. So I think the idea was that they would really become a one-stop shop for everything real estate related. Um, so they would use their data to buy properties at what they believe to be um, a slight discount to market value. They would sell it through their brokerage. They would hook you up with a lender. Uh, I'm not certain whether they have title companies uh, that are owned by Zillow or some sort of marketing agreements with any title companies, but I assume that that is a part of the picture as well. Um, And all of these suite of services would ultimately add up to a profitable venture for Zillow. Yeah, I think with the iBuying component specifically, at least my assumption was that they were buying stuff, as you said, Ryan, underpriced, um, maybe in need of light renovations or something akin to that. And then using their kind of algorithm, algorithmically driven approach, um, they were targeting properties that, you know, essentially were underpriced and they knew that they could make, they thought that they could make whatever on based on repair costs of whatever. So in a sense, it's like um, what flippers do but maybe not necessarily approaching a house that's, you know, completely in massive need of renovation. I think they were buying stuff that was more or less what most flippers would consider like turnkey. Is that your impression? Yeah. And I I think the idea was applying massive scale to what most flippers do. So if you're making like, you know, as a flipper might look for making, you know, 
uh, rel- the, the ARV of a property might be triple what their purchase price is because they're putting in, you know, a fair amount. I think Zillow was trying to make, you know, 5% or 10%, but times, you know, 10 million properties, which right. is a fairly, you know, is a large amount of money if you, if you're able to apply it. Right. I so, think, yeah. If you think about how their platform is designed, I think if they, if they make, if most flippers are looking to make thirty uh, $30,000 on an average deal, in this context, I think Zillow may have taken the approach and said, well, we can stand to make fifteen or $20,000 per property because in addition to that, we're going to make something on the, on the real estate commission. We're going to make some, or generate some ancillary income off of the mortgage side of things, perhaps the title side of things. So if you think about it, if you think about their profitability from a holistic perspective, their scale allows them to, or in theory, would allow them to do things that certain flippers just couldn't stomach. Yeah. Um, also, they're very well capitalized. Right. So I think for a flipper to do this, you would, you know, if you, there's no way that a flipper could buy, a single flipper could buy even 100 homes in a year without a massive operation, whereas Zillow was buying thousands upon thousands a quarter. Um, so they had, you know, a lot of liquidity to do this with so that making, even if they're to your point, right, even if they're making $0, they're still probably making money later on because their business model and other parts of their businesses, the brokerage, um, advertising revenue through, you know, normal, normal Zillow, um, whatever else they, the financing, you know, whatever else they're expanding into. I think from, from that perspective, it sounds kind of like a brilliant model, right? right. Because you can be, not necessarily agnostic about making money on a flip, but you don't have to be, um, if you're kind of like in, in the realm of correct, you could probably do very well. So right. like if you're like, maybe you make 5% on one, you lose 5% on one, you make 10% that, you know, if you're kind of in that realm and you really have faith in the rest of your business model, it sounds great. Right. Right. And, and beyond that, I mean, the amount of data that they're armed with, they should in theory be able to make, as good of a guess on what uh, on the value that they're going to be able to sell a house for than anyone else. Um, I mean, certainly anyone can go pull comps and can can try to get super granular with it. But if you want to just kind of do like an off the cuff analysis to understand how certain properties might compare to one another, um, and perhaps even diving into some of the or diving into some of the insights that they can glean from traffic patterns on their website and right. just kind of aggregating all of this demand info, they, in theory, have the opportunity to do things that most flippers cannot. Right. They they presumably have access to the more or less the same data that anybody would have, but even more because they have their own internal metrics about what houses are seen the most or clicked on the most. Right. Um, and they uh, presumably they have... A, a ton of data uh, data analysts going through and combing through that data and really trying to understand what that data means in ways that most laymen are not doing. Yeah, exactly. So from that perspective, I guess it's sort of surprising that it failed in the way that it did. Right. And I think the failure, um, I think Ryan, you have some more specific numbers, but it's to the tune of a lot of money that they ultimately lost through this venture. Yeah, so according to uh, the most recent thing I read from Bloomberg Business Week, their uh, what they classified as the Zillow eye buying dumpster fire um, came to the tune of a five hundred sixty nine million dollar loss, uh, and I believe that the way that that was quantified 
was based on a write down that Zillow did on their inventory. So essentially what that means is one quarter they reported and said they had a billion dollars of inventory on hand the next quarter, that same inventory with no changes, you know, apples to apples comparison, they had to write down the value of that inventory by $569 million. million. And obviously the the percentage there is is not exactly accurate. I, I don't know what the previous value of all of that was, but the important thing to note was that that inventory was previously $569 million higher, which means that Zillow previously had vastly overestimated the worth of their holdings through their iBuying program. Yeah, so I, I think the question is, it, the the question of discussion is sort of why. And I think it'd be an interesting topic for us to broach because we're both in the the space. I mean, one thing that we don't know is, you know, kind of the internal Zillow workings of the company. And I think your point is very important, which is that we, about how this kind of set up the whole Zillow ecosystem. We don't know how those other ancillary businesses did or didn't do in the context of, of the the buying business. So maybe they made more money than, you know, whatever. We're just looking kind of at the exogenous factors. I think, Ryan, we were talking before this episode a little bit about the topic. And I think it's very easy just to, from the perspective of a real estate professional, like a flipper to just say like, oh, how stupid, how could Zillow ever think that they could do this? But I don't really think that that, uh, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Ryan, but I, you know, that, that was something that, that you felt wasn't really the appropriate response to what's happening. Right. Yeah. I'd be curious to see where Zillow takes this from here. If they, at some point in the future, relaunch this program and maybe take some lessons from this experiment. Um, I'd also be curious to see how in the coming months and years, how, uh, some of their competitors like open door and OfferPad do, um, cause obviously they operate on a somewhat similar model though, without the the same platform that Zillow has. I think that there are a bunch of these too. Yeah. I mean, those are the biggest ones, but there are right. dozens and dozens in, in individual markets. In fact, we ourselves were thinking about kind of launching one about uh, two years ago right. for New Jersey because right. uh, Zillow was not operating New Jersey at the time or maybe never, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they ever uh, dove into New Jersey. So another another aspect of this that I don't have a lot of information about, I don't know if that's because there's not a ton of information publicly available about this, or it's just been less reported on than some of the other aspects. But I, I'd be curious to, to see how much the capital stack impacted the outcome of this program. My understanding is that Zillow, um, they, they had financing for these purchases on a deal-by-deal basis. Um, I, did, I read something... Uh, that referenced their some loan covenants that they had, presumably for this program. Um, so I wonder how much maybe the terms of that either limited them or um, or otherwise impacted their ability to to operate this profitably. I think one thing people don't realize because Zillow, or despite the fact that Zillow is a massive company that is presumably well capitalized, they're not just going into their bank account and taking their liquid funds and saying, okay, we're going to go buy $10 billion worth of real estate this month. They're you know, financing it in a manner similar to how most flippers would be. So um, what that does, what leverage does in any, in any instance, is it increases your sensitivity to certain factors. Um, when, when things go well, it certainly augments your profit margins, but, uh, or your, yeah, your, 
profit margin does in terms of your rates of return. But when things don't go well, i.e. you overestimate the value of your project or you underestimate the holding costs and maybe the construction associated with that project, um, it definitely uh, definitely hampers your um, your profit margins. So I wonder how much that, that impacted this experiment from Zillow's perspective. Um, one thing I also saw, and I think that this specifically probably had an impact on Zillow's most recent decision to uh, reduce the prices across the board and mark down their inventory, is that they had a loan covenant that allegedly limited the number of houses that they could own for a period of greater than six months. So in order to comply with that loan covenant and not jeopardize their standing with their lender, presumably they had to reduce the prices of a lot of their inventory in order to move it, get it off the books, and to not be in violation of that covenant. That's interesting. I haven't read that, but that's fascinating. Um, I wonder, I mean, so the, 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 the narrative that I hear, maybe that you've heard, heard as well, is that the reason why Zillow failed, notwithstanding those specific things that you just brought up, the reason why Zillow failed is because the whole premise of being able to price asset, real estate assets kind of at massive scale and predict where the price of those assets will go in six months or 12 months is flawed. And I think that that's what Zillow said when they announced that this was happening. They said, look, we miss." we miscalculated the how housing prices will change, presumably not in their favor. So they thought that housing prices would increase in certain markets and they didn't increase or they went down or whatever. Um, what do you think about that as a, as a topic? Because I, I, I feel like I have, a lot, I have a lot of thoughts all around that topic from being in the real estate space for a long time. But I'm curious, I'm curious to hear your impression and I'll, I'll share my, my thoughts. Well, I think if, if the approach from the get-go was banking on the fact that what they were buying today for $500,000 with no work was going to be worth $530,000 in six months when they go to sell it just by virtue of market appreciation, that's a pretty risky bet to take. Um, I don't know if that was their bet. I, I, I assume that their bet was that they saw assets and they said, we could buy it for 470 but the true market price is 500 Right. So we'll just buy it and then flip it. Yeah, I, I mean... I think, or maybe maybe a combination of both, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's this is like sort of where I I hesitate to take a super strong stance because I think it's really hard to have an opinion on whether or not that is a sound or flawed approach because you don't know what the algorithm looks like that makes that determination. So if they're just looking at like very vanilla data points such as bedroom count, bathroom count, square footage, location. Um, and maybe a few other related factors, and they're saying, "Oh, this house should be worth five hundred, but it's only listed at four seventy. There are so many other things that like that may be a sound ap- approach in certain instances, but I would say that without a comprehensive data set, it's very hard to say that that's going to work every time. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that i I think contributes to this considerably is how homogenous the housing stock is in a given market. Exactly. So if you're in, you know, if you're in Phoenix, you're probably going to have especially in more newly developed areas of the city 
or of the metropolitan area, you may have you, you'll probably have more homogeneous housing stock. If you're in a specific neighborhood, that entire neighborhood may have, may have been built in the 1970s or the 1980s or 1995. Um, and when that's the case, you can generally make some pretty safe predictions about um, how the value of property B is going to influence the value of property A. Right. If you're in a condo building where you have 80 right. identical condos, you know, every condo you can easily price. You know, and if one condo has granite countertops, the other doesn't, then you can just factor that in as a as an additional price or whatever. And, and, and there's a reason why Zillow started this out in certain markets. I think it was mm-hmm. because they were sensitive to that to that fact. Obviously, I, I don't know that they ever made it to a place like New Jersey where you have you have neighborhoods that are that were built originally or settled originally in the 1800s, and you have houses that were built in 1850 next to houses that were built in 1925, next to houses that were built in 1970, next to something that was built yesterday. Yeah. I mean, for me, it touches on kind of a larger point about real estate investing in general. And we've talked about this even before on the podcast about um, sort of why is real estate investing an attractive asset class, particularly the type of investing that we do, which I think I would broadly classify as value-add investing. And the the real premise, I think the, the underlying assumption of all that investing is that it is possible to find mispriced assets. I think if you, if, um, and that's why real estate has these barriers to entry, um, unlike, and that's why real estate is much more difficult and much more, um, uh, less fungible than stocks or bonds or whatever, you know, any other asset class you want to talk about because, um, setting a market price for determining what a home is worth is very difficult. And you can still find very frequently assets that are truly mispriced. Like if the real estate market was perfectly efficient, you would assume that, you know, a house that needed $150,000 of renovations, um, and somehow you knew that number exactly, that house should be worth exactly $150,000 less than the identical house that doesn't require $150,000 renovations. But that simply is not true, even in, in the condo scenario, right? If you looked at a condo and said, yeah, these are the exact same condos on the exact same floor, different end of the floor. This one needs 50 grand of renovations. This one doesn't. Are you going to price that one 50 grand less? Probably not because you don't know that it's going to be exactly 50 grand. Um, or maybe not for other reasons. Maybe it's only priced $10,000 less or maybe it's priced $100,000 less. So I think trying to kind of bank on those arbitrage opportunities is is kind of like the name of the game for a lot of real estate investing. That's why I think, you know, we always talk about the importance of deal flow and it kind of gets into like how wholesalers make money, right? Wholesalers essentially make money on that arbitrage. They make money because they think, oh, this is mispriced and I can do nothing to it and sell to somebody else for however much more. Right. Yeah. I think another way to think about the approach that Zillow is taking and the approach the approach that I think any iBuyer would have to take is that what you're trying to do is convert something that is highly subject- subjective, i.e. the value of a property and make it something that you can determine based on an algorithm, based on a formula, um, and and sort of like bypass a lot of the brute force work that one does when trying to value a property. Right. I think, you know, the, the challenge is, you know, in, in the stock market, for example, which is extremely, you know, I, I would assume most people would assume basically perfectly efficient um, in that you don't have, no one has an inherent advantage over somebody else, except if you have some sort of insert information, which is why it's illegal. But um, 
you know, the, the value of a stock is not necessarily tied to the performance of the company um, or really any factor of the company. It's tied to what other people might value that particular share of the company at or value the company at. And so that's great because you're kind of, and obviously, you know, indirectly, many factors go into that valuation. How's the company doing? How's the market? How's my perception of the market? How's my perception of the company, the leadership, whatever else. But you're kind of removing all of that and just saying, well, the stock is worth whatever anybody's willing to pay for it. And in real estate, that's the same answer. Your house is worth what anybody's willing to pay for it. But what Zillow is doing is essentially saying like, assuming we don't even have that you know, market really, like how can we come to a price? That's just only one data point. What, there's only one data point, which is like, what are the comps, right? But all the other data points that they're looking at, like the number of bedrooms, the location, the quality of the home, when it was built, does it have granite countertop, whatever else, all those things are trying to put into a number. It would almost be like, to me saying like, how much is Tesla's stock worth? And I'm going to look at the share price of the stock right now, but also I'm going to look at, you know, their their sales performance, their revenue, how much I trust Elon Musk, you know, do I think Elon Musk is really handsome or not, you know, whatever, like all these other factors. And it's like really tough, I think, right. to come up with that number. Yeah. And again, without having all that much insight into what Zillow's process was for valuing these properties, the if, if you're going off of something that is algorithmically driven, you really need to be spot on with that algorithm because if you're, let's say, let's say the average price point is $400,000. If you're off in your numbers by even 5%, that is $20,000 in value on a $400,000 property. And in many cases, that would be the difference between being profitable or being not profitable. And if you apply that across 10,000 houses, 20,000 houses that Zillow was buying, you know, on a quarterly basis, that is the difference between a highly profitable operation and an operation that you need to shut down. So I, I assume that when they went into this, they started slowly, they really tried to hone in on their algorithm. I assume that this was tied pretty heavily to their Zestimates uh, and to the algorithm that that drives that. But obviously that that has improved over time. And I think that is was probably the impetus for going into the I buying program when they did because they probably felt like they had reached the point where that that zestimate was something that they could bet on. Um, but you know, it, it's it's really hard to do that. And I think this is like what I was saying to John earlier is that it, it's like the natural reaction for I think anyone who's a real estate professional, whether they're a flipper or a realtor. Um, upon hearing this news, the natural reaction would be to say, oh yeah, of course this didn't work. My job is very hard. I, you know, I have to go through, I have to find comps. I have to understand that like this comp was different than this comp for this reason and that reason. I, you know, maybe need to under understand some of the qualitative factors that aren't necessarily reflected in the purchase price or in the square footage or the bedroom and bathroom count. And you know, that's, that's why I'm a prof professional. That's why I'm a, a real estate agent or a flipper or a successful appraiser. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I understand that point. And obviously John and I have been doing this and are kind of in that camp, but I, you know, there's a reason why Zillow is a multi-billion dollar company. Um, they're, they're not dumb money and they, they didn't just do this on a whim. There was a lot of thought and a lot of planning that went into this. So I, I guess I 
am not surprised that it didn't go exactly as they had hoped um, the first time around, but I wouldn't necessarily discount their ability to revamp this process, revamp this program, and come back in a few years with a different iteration of Zillow offers and to do so with maybe some more success, taking some of the lessons that they learned from this experience. I think one you know immediate thought I have in response to what you said is that a lot of people in the real estate industry think that appraisals are complete BS. Um, and Ourselves included. Ourselves included. <laughs> and I think we've even talked about that on this show before. And maybe the, you know, the, the process of obtaining an appraisal, I think, is kind of like, I don't want to use the word arbitrary, but it, you know, there, there are, it's difficult. Um, but to say that appraisals are, I think when you say an appraisal is BS, that naturally means that it's also valueless. Like it has no, you know, in, like inherent value at all, which is like a random number. But that's not true at all. Appraisals are really important. Appraisals are what your financing generally is based on. Um, and, you know, appraisals oftentimes are a basis for how to price your home for a sale or how your home will be assessed for taxes. So appraisals are actually quite important. And again, appraisals... Um, in the you know kind of like pen and paper non-algorithmic world are looking at the same factors that Zillow looked at you know they're they're looking at the comps but also adjusting for things like square footage or quality of the build or certain upgrades or the size of the lot or whatever else so you know to kind of discount entirely Zillow's premise is to also discount entirely what an appraiser does, which is, you know, the, the basis I think of much of real estate, um, whether or not you think that that number is completely arbitrary or not, is not important. It's that, that, that number, whatever, however it came up with is very important. Yeah. Like, like it's a significant number. I, I think what this, what all of this also speaks to is, as you alluded to before, the inefficiencies of real estate. So one I guess one example of that is that if you have a house that you list for sale for $499 and you make that decision based on sound assumptions about comps and you know everyone is in agreement that that is at least a realistic listing price, you might have 30 different groups come through the property, 30 different people look at it, 30, uh, 10 people offer on it. And I'd be very surprised if those 10 people are offering the same number. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's... And again, you I, I never guess, have that in the stock market, right? right. You wouldn't say someone, I'm going to pay 100 for Tesla, I'm going to pay 50. No, you pay the market price. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah, so the... You can bet on it going up or down through optionalities right. in the stock market, right? But if you want to buy the equity, you're buying the price. Right. Um, so I guess, I guess like one way of saying it is that the value of a piece of real estate, at least for like owner occupant purposes or especially for owner occupant purposes purposes is going to be individualized. Um, that property that's listed for 499 might be worth 450 to me. It might be worth 475 to John. It might be worth 500 to somebody else. And that zero could be zero to someone else. Yeah. And then other people might just be completely disinterested in the property uh, for whatever reason. Um, and what drives that is that I have different needs than John has. And the third buyer has different needs from the two of us. So for 
For some of us buyers, having parking might be super important. For others, might having an extra bedroom might be super important. Um, we might have different tastes. His, you know, the house that we're looking at might be decorated in a contemporary fashion, and you know, one of these buyers might have a preference for something that is a little bit more traditional. Um, I might think that the house requires ten thousand dollars of work because I'm thinking I'll do it myself. Whereas Ryan thinks it requires $100,000 because I need a general contractor to come in and make sure all the you know piping and wiring is all yep, fine, whatever fine. else. There are many, many, many factors. Right. So and, I, and, and I guess another thing is just like locations are even subjectively valuable. Like I, I might be interested in buying this house because my parents live next door. Or in my case, I might be not interested in buying this house because my uh, parents live next door. Yeah. Um, and, you know, John might be interested in buying the house because his daughter is in the school district already and they really want to move, but they don't want to leave the school district. So they, you know, this is the perfect house for them at that point in time because it'll allow them to size up from their current place and keep their daughter in the school district before right. the, the new school year starts. The other side of my, per my brain is thinking, um, well, all those things are really important, but is it really impossible to come up with an, to come up with at least a you know kind of okay number? Is it really the case that appraisals are completely not based in reality? Because I think that you could make an argument that that it is possible to come up with at least numbers that are you know somewhat accurate as to how much a how much a house would be worth were it marketed. And obviously, the more interchangeable the homes are the easier it is to come up with those numbers. But I almost hear that's what you're saying a little bit, Ryan, is that it's not like all those things that we just talked about, about why the price of real estate might vary a lot. Um, you know, it's kind of like, I almost think of it like, you know, there's complexity on the micro level, but then there's simplicity in the macro level, right? Right. right. So it's, um, you know, it's like, if you're doing it at scale, maybe it's possible, right? right. Yeah. Um, just to, to, to speak to the micro aspect, like I think the micro level is what we were talking about before, where like a given house might be worth four ninety nine to someone, four forty nine to someone else, zero to someone else, and five fifty to someone who just you know had some set of circumstances changed and really wants to get exactly what they want. Yeah, I think certainly like if you approach it from the perspective of, of bound setting, like boundary making, you can kind of narrow into it. Like I live in a city in New Jersey where it would be basically inconceivable for a single family home to sell for below $250,000. Doesn't matter what size it is. Doesn't matter, you know, where it is. It's never going to happen. You know, maybe if it's an absolute like uninhabitable, complete teardown, possibly, but that's it. And on the other end, it's basically inconceivable for any home in where I live to sell for probably more than a million and a half dollars. Doesn't matter if it's the biggest mansion, doesn't matter whatever, it just, there's not a market for that. And yeah, maybe that's not the most useful bounds, but like you can kind of get a little bit closer and say, well, how much, what about a three bedroom home? How much would that possibly sell for? Like, well, like, I don't think it would sell for less than 300 grand, but at the same time, I can't imagine three bedroom homes selling for more than 750. So it's like you kind of get these bounds a little bit more, you know, and like, yeah, there's one or two maybe exceptions that you can say, but those aren't really significant if you're looking at a huge scale. And you can kind of like bound it, bound it, bound it, bound it. I could understand the argument. It's like, yeah, I can get pretty close. I could understand like a range between 500 and 550 for this given house. Like that's conceivable to me, right? And if you're doing it again at massive scale, maybe I buy a house for 500. I think it'll sell for 525. It actually sells for 510. Like, uh, but I buy another one for 510. I think it's going to sell for 520. It actually sells for 550. Like, 
oh, you know, I'm doing okay, right? So like, it's almost like, it's like day traders, right? Like if you can, if, if you're a day trader, you only want to win 51% of the time, 50.1% of the time, right? Because you have so much volume that that 0.1% is going to make you a ton of money. So who cares if you lose 49.9% of your bets? If you, if you have a 0.1% advantage, you know, at a casino, right? If you have a 0.1% advantage, you'll, you'll win. So I think that from that perspective, um, I can understand that model. And I think that that's, that kind of underlies the premise. It's like if you, if you are able to get close enough in a reasonable enough range and you're confident enough that you're going to win like 1% of the time and all these other ancillary benefits that you said, Ryan, even if you're confident enough that you're going to break even maybe, um, that might not be the worst business model, you know? It'd be interesting to do a a postmortem, you know, if if we were Zillow and had access to the data that they have, it'd be interesting to do a postmortem and to try to understand if there were any trends um, underlying or underpinning the deals that they lost money on versus the ones that they made money on. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether it was, you know, they they strayed too far from something in their... um, in their data set or they under undervalued a certain element of the the data set. So, you know, maybe they, maybe they didn't realize that parking commanded more of a premium than they thought. So they were paying an extra $15,000 for properties that didn't have ample parking. And that was then under, uh, that was then undervaluing the property when they went to, to sell it because more buyers were sensitive to that absence of parking than they previously thought. It's a great question. I, it'd be fascinating to, to, to look into that. I mean, I wonder too how much their, their premise is kind of to get these deals. I think they said, we'll close fast, right? We'll, we'll close with, you know, no due diligence or very little due diligence and we'll close within 30 days or whatever. Kind of like, you know, those like we buy your homes for cash, like we buy ugly home signs. Um, I wonder how much you know, that factored into their strategy of saying like, we need to be fast and beat out all the other competitors in the market. Um, like were they ever in bidding wars or do they always have a price and say like, this is the price. Do they always offer their maximum price? Do they ever say like, you know, our maximum price is 600, but the house is listed for 530. Like we'll offer 530, you know, like how did that play out? It's also entirely possible. They were just being too aggressive. I mean, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of a home seller. Um, and obviously, in, in in most markets, there are there's not only one person or company, i.e., Zillow, that's willing to buy their houses. So maybe they would go to Zillow, they'd get a price that was three seventy five, and then they'd go shop it around to four or five local players, and they would all come back between three forty and three sixty, and then they would say, okay, uh, well, Zillow Zillow was the best price here, so I'm going to sell to them because you know that that it's maximizing my bottom line and I don't really care who I sell to. Whereas in other instances, if they had made that same offer of 375 to the seller and then they bring in the other three or four or five other local players, those local players may have been able to see something that Zillow didn't see and therefore offered between 380 and 400 for the same property. So as a consequence of that approach, Zillow just kind of get got stuck with all of the stuff that they had overpriced and missed out on the stuff that they underpriced. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, your comment made me think of um, of kind of examples where this 
worked in, in a little bit of a different context. I was thinking specifically of invitation homes, um, Blackstone's uh, single family home buying um, excursion, which I think is, was very successful or is very successful. I, I don't, um, I don't know specifically, but I, I think it, I mean, they bought a massive amount of homes with, you and know, mostly at the homes. right time at the right time. But I think that the premise of that was similar to what Zillow was trying to do and that you have, you have massive scale. So you're buying not 10 single family homes, you're buying thousands. I mean, I, I was at, I remember it was a conference where someone from Blackstone was talking. I think that their minimum buy in any given city was like 10,000 single family homes or something cr- completely nuts. So you're, you're buying, you know, truly massive scale. And like the arbitrage opportunity that you're depending on with that premise is you're essentially saying, you know, I think those are for rental. Um, so you're, you're thinking, you know, I think rent home prices are single family home prices are mispriced relative to their potential as rentals now or in the future. So I'm going to buy them at this price. I'm going to kind of add value by just increasing the rent or putting renters in there. Um, and I'm going to make money. And I think that that worked. And I, I assume that part of the under, under what underlied that model is the same thing that Zillow was working on, which is to say, how do I value these single family homes? In that case, how do I value the single family homes not for resale, but for rentals? But it's the same idea, right? Yeah. I, I think that that's a more forgiving model though. And I think that's an easier bet to make on the macro level, because if you're doing rentals and you're off, you know, you buy something for for 200 that the market determines should be worth 180. Well, if you're flipping it, that $20,000 might be your entire profit margin. That might be the difference between being profitable and losing money. If you're doing some if you're doing this as rentals, that $20,000 in cost basis is probably going to be financed and might be the difference between an extra $50 a month on your mortgage payment. So in that context, you know, you have more runway to to be mis, uh, to be wrong on either end of the spectrum. Either yeah. either your your costs and thus your holding costs might be a little higher, and you can stomach that. Or maybe you mis mispriced your rent a little bit, and instead of renting for twelve hundred a month, it rented for eleven fifty. But in either case, being off by you know five percent is not going to be nearly as catastrophic as being off by five percent on a flip. And and you're secured by the asset too. I mean, we, we see this even in, in what we we do ourselves. I think because and we talked about this in previous episodes about how difficult flipping can be. And I think it's that exact point, Ryan, is that, you know, if you're off by a little bit in a flip, that's way different than to your bottom line than if you're off by a little bit in your rental assumptions. And, you know, when you're doing a house to flip, you're, you're more than often not all in on that strategy. It doesn't, it often doesn't make sense to put the amount of money that you might have to put in for a flip in the time period that you have to do if the ultimate goal is going to be as a rental. Um, however, on the flip side, if your goal is for it to be a rental and just t- turns out opportunistically you can sell, in fact, that's happened to us, um, that is fine. You know, there's no, like, you know, no, no money lost. Maybe it could have been more profitable at the outset. If you said, I'm going to do all the renovations in six months instead of in eight months or 12 months, whatever. But, um, you know, the, the, the kind of like general thesis, the, 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 the general premise is the same. So, um, it's, it's an interesting topic. I mean, I, I think the comments, the commentators that I've heard on Zillow, have been very surface level. I think I think your kind of you know mocking of them is accurate and saying like like 
of course, like you can't right. do this. It's just like, you know, whatever. But I, I feel like that, that argument happens so often in all, many industries, right? It's like the argument that, you know, you can't buy a car without a car salesman because who else is going to really show them, you know, the, the great features of the car. You have to sit in the car. You got to drive the car. You got to do this, go to that. And many, many car sales don't happen online um, without people even being in the car. Um, you know, I don't know what percentage of car sales happen online, but it's a lot. And so, you know, it, it sounds to me like when people were, were saying, you know, before the internet, when the internet was like kind of just becoming the internet, right? People were like, oh, you know, like what a, you know, no one would sell books online. You go to a bookstore, you got to read through the book, you got to touch the book, right? I mean, come on, no one cares about that now. Have you seen anything about, I guess, prior to this latest uh, surge of news, have you seen anything about how Zillow, Zillow, uh, Zillow Offers was doing like maybe the 15 or 18 months preceding this latest change? I hadn't, but I'd assume they've been doing well because there've been, there've been many competitors that have sprouted up kind of on in their wake. And I think that my, you know, it's, it's pretty rare for a company the size of Zillow to have such a big undertaking where we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars devoted to this to then publicly fail. You know, I think like the fact that Zillow did it at all was probably a big, you know, indication that it in their micro tests, it must have been going pretty well. Because I don't think that, you know, unless they thought, man, like our industry is completely dead, you know, we have to do something to complete, you know, like our company is going to die unless we do this, which I don't think Zillow was in that position. For them to take such a big bet, it must have been that they they were doing pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I'm also just thinking like the timing of this is kind of curious, because we're in from you know, a macro perspective, it's been quite a strong real estate market. Yeah. So I don't know if they, maybe they put too much faith in the uptick that we had been seeing during COVID. And so they justified paying five or 10% more for certain houses, thinking that this trend would continue and it maybe didn't materialize in the way that they thought. So they were losing money on some of these deals. Um, maybe, you know, maybe they were off on a lot of things from the get go and that, you know, the, the bull market that we saw over the last 18 months or two years or whatever it's been, um, maybe that surge just kind of masked a lot of their inefficiencies or a lot of their underlying issues. Um, maybe they really also know. see the writing on the wall a little bit. Maybe, maybe right. they're looking and saying, you know, inflation is, is, is high right now. What's that going to do to interest rates? You know, what's that going to do to real estate prices in general? Right. Maybe. I mean, I think... Um, you know, my, my conclusion or, you know, from this discussion kind of where I'm pointing is that I don't know if the premise was flawed. And I think that that's what, I think that's what most commentators say is like, it's just impossible. Like the premise is impossible. I think it's more that the, I think it's really, really, really hard. Um, and, and probably the only people that can do it are someone like Zillow or someone with like truly massive scale. Um, but more so that perhaps their execution was, was wrong. And we, we don't really know that because we're never going to have access to their like individual data. Um, but it'd be fascinating to see. Right. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think there are so many, you know, if I, if I had someone who was truly in the know, there are so many questions that I would ask to try to ascertain some of these yeah. conclusions. Um, I'd ask like, can you give me $10 million for <laughs> a couple of uh, buying experiments? <laughs> right. But, you know, obviously without, without being able to see behind the curtain, there are so many, only so many conclusions we can draw. I'd be curious. I mean, you know, if, if they come back in a year or two or three years, 
I'd be very curious. I'd be really curious to see what's going to happen in the rest of the market. Because there's so many companies. There's a company. There's companies that I know that were like completely not in this space that are like pivoting into this space. Um, so, uh, in fact, just yesterday, a friend of mine sent me a, a text. Uh, asking about a company I never heard of that's like kind of in this space. It's not exactly what Zillow is doing. I think it's more like just creating a marketplace for flips or something like that. I don't know if they're buying or they're just kind of looking at something. And it's something kind of iteration on this space, thinking like, you know, what do you think about it? Because somebody, one of the early investors or founders or something like that wants to exit and they wanted this guy to buy their shares. And he's asking me like, you know, do you think it's a good deal to buy the shares given all the stuff that's going on? And I you know, I kind of said to him what I said in this podcast, like I, in some ways I would say, no, definitely not. And otherwise I would say possibly, you know, I, I I don't know. Yeah. I think for what it's worth, we we maybe could have made this distinction earlier on, but I think it's, it's critical to understand if the intention of purchasing in this kind of eye buyer capacity is to purchase with the intention of flipping or to purchase with the intention of holding. Um, Because I know, I, I think even through EXP, there's like a, integrated iBuyer program where EXP is the uh, EXP Realty. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I assume many other brokerages have something similar, but um, there's a program where you can sort of like apply to be a part of the iBuyer program and you, um, you more or less give your buying criteria to, I think a broker who specializes in this program or an agent who specializes in this program. And then that is inputted into effectively a database. And then when something fits your criteria, it's sent your way or like maybe an uh, an offer is automatically generated. I don't know exactly what the mechanics are, but I think that premise is probably more achievable for people like us who want to buy to rent. Like I think we could conceivably operate in this capacity in, you know, within a very narrow set of parameters in Atlantic City because we understand our market. We understand what we target. We understand what prices are today and what we're willing to pay um, for something today. But it's much harder to do that on um, when your geographic area is more broad. It's much harder to do that when your model is to buy something and renovate and think that you can eke out a twenty-five or $30,000 margin when you go to sell it um, because of all the inputs that we talked about before that can impact what that bottom line number ultimately is. Yeah, it's is. interesting that you say that about Atlantic City and kind of our like expertise in it because I think that that's like a really you know easy argument um, to... Like, it, it, I think it's easy just to say that, like, yeah, we know Atlantic City really well. Like, we know what we'd pay for, like, you know, and, and the reason that we know that is because we've been operating there for a long time and we've seen so many houses and, you know, we've seen how the market changes. We know how much we could sell houses for, what we bought for, yada, yada, yada. And, like, my first, my gut reaction is to say, like, yeah, like, humans are pretty good at that. You know, they're pretty good at synthesizing lots of different data and kind of putting it into it. But then I thought, like, well, what's even better than humans, like, with taking a lot of data and coming to a conclusion? Well, I was like, computers, like, <laughs> right? Like, algorithms, you know, like, if you have all the data like a computer is gonna you know blow you like right it's like playing chess you know right. like yeah maybe in the 90s you know computers couldn't do it but like now like no one can beat a computer playing chess even on your phone you know you right. can't be you know even the greatest chess player of all time couldn't beat on your phone playing chess so it's like yeah like i mean definitely there's expertise there that we have but i wonder like a computer could do well you know yeah I, I mean i think to i think one one thing to underscore um in that statement for us and our, you know, insofar as this applies to our activity in a place like Atlantic City, part of our premise is that we are, I think, receptive to buying things, 
like we're we're recepting receptive to buying the right assets at the right price to us and i think the right price to us in off like in many cases in atlantic city today is more or less what the market value of that property is yeah whereas in you know north jersey if we're looking to buy a flip we're looking to buy that at you know a 25 percent discount to what market value is today right um so i i think that that was more of the space where Zillow was looking to operate in or like maybe a little bit of a hybrid between the two. Maybe they didn't need a 25% discount, but they needed an 8% discount. Well, I think the difference for us too is that our arbitrage opportunity, our value add is not something that was on Zillow. Well, it's not something that was explicitly on Zillow's radar. Maybe it kind of was implicit in kind of their pricing, but you know, our value add is that we're taking assets that are mispriced because they're not being used as short-term rentals, but they could be used as short-term rentals and we're changing them. So it's like, yeah, we're happy buying at market price because we know that market price is still way below, you know, what true market price might be, assuming, you know, the the, the highest and best use of the property. Right. right. We basically have a macro thesis that we've applied to a micro market. Right. I, I want to leave with one question that occurred to me um, when I was thinking about this uh, uh, before we recorded, which is how much do you think that either Zillow directly or just the industry that Zillow has created or, you know, been a big factor in, um, um, promoting, which is, um, internet buying, I buying, how much do you think that has distorted the real estate market? And is it possible that some of the gains in the real estate market very broadly have been driven by this type of buying? That's a fair question. Um, it'd be, I guess the first data point I would look to is how much of the overall real estate activity in a given quarter has been driven by these iBuyers. And I I think that if you look at things holistically, it's probably not that much of the market. Um, but I think if you drill down into certain markets where companies like Zillow or Opendoor or um, Offerpad are particularly active, it can certainly have an impact on maybe a given neighborhood or um, a given metro area, perhaps. I wonder, like, that they are that broadly buying. Yeah, I wonder, like, what percentage of the market um, has to be kind of inflated to have a an impact on the whole market. You know, right. like, is it is it one percent? Is it point five percent? Is it point one? Is it ten percent? You right. know, I don't know. I, but there's also the cascading effect of what Zillow is doing. I mean, I, I think one argument that people were making was that if if Zillow decides that they want to invest in Rutherford, New Jersey, and you know if there are if there are three hundred two hundred houses on the market at a given time, that's probably even high for a place like Rutherford. Let's say let's say fifty houses on the market at a given point in time. Mm-hmm. If Zillow comes in and buys twenty of them at what they perceive to be a good deal, and then they come in and they buy the twenty first at a premium they've just increased the value of the original 20 that they bought. Exactly. And therefore they are like essentially creating the market for selling the all 21 of them. The the reason why I thought of it is is the exact point that you, that you brought up because we're buying, you know, in Atlantic city, we're buying a lot of land, um, many houses too. And, you know, there are occasional land sales in our, you know, vicinity that we may not be buying just because whatever reason, oftentimes because the price is too high. And what I'm, you know, I always think is if even a single person, even a single plot of land sells for, you know, 20% above what we paid for all of our plots of land, it's extremely easy to make an argument to say, well, 
all of our land is now worth 20% more. And that's one sale, right. you know. So that, like, you know, we, we might have purchased 50 lots. And if the 51st lot is 20% more than all the other 50 are, then all those 50, you know, so it, it like, like a very, very small disruption in the market can have humongous impacts on the broader market. This is why I'm wondering, is it 1%? Is it 0.1%? Right. You know, it might be a very small number. Right. Know? And that, that also that also circles back to the point you were making earlier about the value of appraisals and of appraisers, which is that they, they try to bring some objectivity to something that is fairly subjective, which is the value of property. And the way that they do that is to support their their assertion of value based on comps and based on objective data. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they're, they're doing their job if they include all of those comps, including that 21st sale that marks up the price of the remaining 20. Yeah. Um, but it's also sort of like a, a flawed model that's pretty easy to exploit if you understand that right right well i think it's it's a fascinating topic i I wonder if we'll have an opportunity to revisit it if it ever comes back or maybe we'll see other uh eye buying companies crater and then it'll be a lot easier to make the argument like well it's just completely flawed yeah (laughs) the the last question you asked is also interesting because it brought up a follow-up question for me which is maybe not something we need to discuss today but i think it's a similar concept which is you know across the board obviously short-term rentals have been in vogue um, it'd be interesting to see, or it'd be interesting to parse out how how much of an impact that has also had on real hmm. estate values, both across the board and on a more micro level in certain markets that are particularly active in that space. I mean, totally. My argument in Atlantic City to, you know, when, when Atlantic City was passing regulations about short-term rentals, my argument, um, which I, I said to many people was, the the reason why real estate in Atlantic City, residential real estate is more expensive is only because of this. You know, right. it's only because people are realizing that you can use their home as a short term rental. So if you want so, you know, if you want to kind of bring the city out of poverty, right? If you want to increase property values and therefore increase rateables because your property's worth more, et cetera. I mean, this is the way to do it, right? Increase property values. I mean, to that point, there are two like I think the first three properties that we bought in town were in about as bad of shape as they possibly could have been and they were priced almost as low as they possibly could have been they were on the market for a while uh, and they they didn't sell until we came along and we didn't pay very much for them but the only reason why we paid anything for them the only reason why they had any value whatsoever was because they had some value as short-term rentals right so in the absence of that it's entirely possible that those same properties would still be sitting vacant abandoned dilapidated to this day and you know right. it's been two years since that time yeah yeah, I mean, you know, it, I think it's like, you know, like a small ripple can cause a big impact. And so, I, I you know, that's what I'm thinking in, the, in this context. What impact is Zillow leaving the market going to have? Right. I don't know. So um, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Well, this has been a great discussion. I, I, I hope that you guys have enjoyed it as much as we enjoy talking about it. Um, We'd be very curious to hear anyone else's opinion on this topic. I mean, I think it's yeah. it's something that people certainly have opinions on and probably runs the gamut from being super supportive of Zillow's premise to thinking that that was the dumbest thing anyone has I think it's probably like 99% the latter, 1% the (laughs) former, unless you work for Zillow or you own Zillow stock. But um, even if you own Zillow stock. But uh, yeah, so if if you have any comments or thoughts, um, Ryan and I are always excited to talk to people. We've been talking to more people from the podcast recently, been reaching out to us, which has been really fun. Um, And we try to respond to everybody. I think we have responded to everybody that's reached out. So um, if you'd like to do that, uh, the best way is through email right now. Uh, My email address is john, J-O-H-N, at libertyhudson.com. 
And I'm Ryan, R-Y-A-N, at LibertyHudson.com. We are in the process, um, probably not by the time this episode comes out, but of um, creating a little bit more of an online presence based on the podcast and based on some of our other investments. So stay tuned for that. We're going to be doing everything under the Brick by Brick brand. Um, and we're really excited about creating some video content through some of our projects in Atlantic City and elsewhere. So stay tuned for that. Um, in the interim, though, if you are able to like or subscribe to the podcast and however you listen to it, that really helps us out a lot because we uh, get to see how many people are following and listening to us, which makes us excited to do more. But uh, until next time, thank you guys so much for watching and we'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks, guys. And gals. Thanks. Don't forget to visit us at BrickXBrickRealEstate.com for free content to help you along your real estate journey and to follow along on our projects. Subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app and engage with us online via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and BrickXBrickRealEstate.com. See you next time on the Brick by Brick Podcast.